welcome to another episode of Embracing Differences with me, Nipin Anand. This podcast series is meant to bring you different perspectives and concepts in safety. The idea really is to create space for thinking and reflection, not to reinforce any grand theories or our prior knowledge on a subject. The aim is to learn and grow, not to remain stagnant. And of course, as I keep saying, there is no reason for you to believe me or any so-called expert, but keep an open mind and be prepared to challenge your beliefs if you truly want to learn more than what you knew yesterday. Let me start with a story. Just before the start of the pandemic, I was riding a cab in London. The driver was Romanian, an immigrant in the UK, just like I am. And so we found some common things to discuss. And at one point, the conversation ended up into talking about Brexit. And the driver said, you know what? I don't feel psychologically safe these days because of this Brexit thing. I wasn't too sure what he said, so I asked him to repeat. So what do you mean when you say psychologically safe? He said, well, you see, I have to drive at odd hours and you get all sort of passengers. And it's not difficult for someone to find out my nationality when I speak and where I come from. And with this political environment that we all have are facing today, and people with divided opinions, it's not uncommon to hear unpleasant things about immigrants from mainland in the backseat. And sometimes it feels like it's a personal attack on me. Ah, I see. You mean that you don't feel safe about it? He said, yes, that's what I mean. Now, what's the point of telling you this story? The point is to understand how certain concepts at a certain point in time become so pervasive, so unquestionable, that we don't think so much about them when we use them. It's like the term security, how it has changed after the 9-11 or in more recent times, social distance. When we all know that what we are talking about is actually physical distance. But back to the topic, I'm referring to the use of the term psychological safety, which has been so uncritically embraced in the society that we have come to believe that this is the only solution to all our problems. So what is psychological safety? Here's a quote that I borrow from Amy Edmondson. Psychological safety is a belief that one will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns or mistakes. Unquote. And I think it would be safe to say that people, when they don't speak up, when they don't voice their concerns or opinions, or they go along with the most powerful voice in the room, they feel humiliated, ridiculed or abused, These are all considered signs of a psychologically unsafe place. So why did the cab driver use the term without thinking about it too much? I think we all do. Many in the safety critical industries do. Because we are all meaning-making animals. We have to put labels on everything for the sake of understanding. But the irony of meaning-making is that sometimes it's the same labels, the same words, the same categories that cloud the meaning of concepts that we are trying to understand. Over the years, I've become concerned with how the concept of psychological safety has been used and abused to understand how people relate with each other when they work in teams. 
My concern is that the narrative that a docile employee was terrified to speak up because of an abusive boss is sometimes taken too far to explain away a lot of problems that could otherwise be understood if we stop labeling everything as a problem of psychological safety. In this podcast, I have the honor to speak with Amy Edmondson, Novartis Professor of Leadership at Harvard Business School. After else, who would be better to talk to to understand the concept of psychological safety than someone who has lived and breathed psychological safety and team relationships almost all her life and become an internationally acclaimed voice on the subject? And the question I want to ask Amy in this podcast is this. What makes it difficult for people in lower positions to speak up or challenge their bosses? Whether it's pilots, surgeons, captains, or offshore installation managers. My argument, based on years of research, is that people don't speak up because we have a problem of trust. Trust in the competence of employees in lower positions, which creates tensions within the team. And the problem of competence is not an individual's problem. It's a systemic problem. Make no mistakes, I'm not rejecting the problem of psychological safety. But my concern is that if we do not tackle this deep-rooted problem, no amount of psychological safety will help to improve the trust between team members. Amy, first of all, I'm so honored to have you. Uh, Words (laughs) are so limited sometimes. So it's such a wonderful feeling to hear from you, to actually see you in person. You know, this is this this topic is absolutely near and dear to my heart. This is this is the stuff that got me interested in doing a PhD in the first place. So it's unusually focused and exciting. So let's start from there then, because I, I an introduction from your end is probably not needed. The world knows you so well, but uh, not true. In that case, let's start with a small introduction from your end then. Okay, I'm Amy Edmondson, and and I'm a professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School. I study teams and teaming and psychological safety. And I guess my broad interest is in organizational learning, you know, what makes organizations able to keep improving and innovating in a changing world. Beautiful. So uh, a little bit about myself, uh, and I originally come from India. I'm based in Aberdeen, uh, which is the north of Scotland. So 12 years at sea, and then came to the UK to do a master's in economics, which I absolutely didn't like, um, and then ended up doing a PhD in, in, in social sciences, which is where my heart is. Uh, for seven years or so, I served as a safety inspector in the North Sea area. And wow. in the last three years, uh, one of the things that had intrigued me is that is that exactly how you say, how do organizations learn? And in that journey, I came up or came, I was, I was faced with this very uh, life-changing accident that I experienced uh, from this, this uh, passenger ship Costa Concordia that uh, went to ground and capsized off Italy. And the, the stories that emerged as a result of the, the accident were, were very different from the reality that we saw when we went to visit the captain. So we spent four days oh. with him, Amy, just trying to wow. understand his perspective of the accident. So we we collected a lot of data. We collected a lot of story. I mean, his story, his his perspective of the accident. We went into the black box recorder. We we got a hold of lots of informal conversations. We had lots of video footage with him. Wow. And, 
the last two and a half years or so, me and the head of Danish Maritime Max Investigation Board started to put this story together. But this is again, it's our story. It, it's not his story. It's it's not the public view. It's our view. It's our life. You know what we saw from this accident. So the, our four days and how does it change my life at least? So basically, very very different from the reality that that the world knows. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a little bit about the accident now. When we look at the black box, and this is this is the interesting bit that you see uh, a ship heading into the rocks, and and it's it's full of competent people. Uh, everyone is is absolutely certified competent. And what you see minutes before the accident is a complete silence. Uh, hmm. wow. Nobody's really noticing that the ship is heading into the rocks. Nobody's speaking about it. And at one point, you actually hear from the captain that, to the, and he very gently says to the helmsman, the steer, the person who's steering the ship, steer carefully, otherwise we will go on the rocks. And that's kind of a joke uh, from his end. And then the ship meets an accident. She capsizes and, and all everything that follows that happened. But um, so what interested us was that how can a system which is so stable, which is so doing Routine. so well, yeah. yeah, from a complete silence, it goes to absolute chaos and within within few seconds. And what explains this? And I started to get lots of phone calls and emails from people that don't trust this captain and he's a kind of a monster and he had a very powerful presence uh, on the bridge whenever he would come on the bridge there are harbor pilots people who take the ship in and out and they had views about this captain so uh, it was only in 2017 that we had the opportunity to actually go and visit him and what was interesting about that visit was that amongst many other things we kept hearing his 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 mistrust in his officers complete mistrust and I'll, ch- I'll share a small story with you here that, that really changed the course of this research that we did. So the story really is that uh, for the accident, of course, uh, that he goes to the jacuzzi to, to uh, and, and enters into the jacuzzi. And this jacuzzi on, on the passenger ship is supposed to contain uh, salt water. That's what it's supposed to have. So he huh. finds out very quickly that this is, this is uh, not salt water. This is fresh water. So he calls his junior officer and says that, why do we have fresh water here and why not sell salt water? The, the junior officer says that that's because the salt water pump isn't working. So we filled it in with, with fresh water. I said, okay, fine. Why don't you do something? Why don't you get some salt water or salt tablets from the hospital? The ship's hospital has plenty of those because people mm-hmm. usually get dehydrated and there's lots of people on board. So, so he said, why don't you put some salt water or salt tablets in, in this jacuzzi? So... He comes back to the to the jacuzzi next day and the water still tastes absolutely the same. So he calls this officer and says, what's happening here? Why am I not, not seeing this water, salt water? And how many tablets did you end up putting into the, the jacuzzi? The officer responds, three. <laughs> and there's a complete silence there. And the point really is that in his world, somebody who does not understand the basic principles of or Archimedes principle or the salinity of the water is not fit to be an officer of watch. And there comes the, the, the trust issue. And we consistently hear about that all the time. And then we go back to see the, the situation in the labor market, that what's really happening here, you know, the very very interesting um, uh, patterns of a, a huge expansion within the cruise industry and lots of people uh, being recruited, uh, not to the, to the level that you would expect, lots of fast promotions in, an, in a culture which is traditionally very hierarchical. And it lends itself to a very interesting crewing patterns in the teams. So you have hmm. one, one person who is like the silo, who's the expert, and the rest of them are just novices. 
And in that sense, how this relation plays out is, and it, it just gave us an opportunity to see a completely different world from his, his perspective. Obviously, uh, we, we looked into many other accidents from that point onwards to see what is common between the Costa Concordia and the MH370 and the Ethiopian Airlines and so on. It's a real tension. It's not something that is, um, you know, can easily be waved away. There's a tension because people um, are quite, especially in very hierarchical systems, they're quite worried about being and looking competent. And at the same time, their real performance, their real safety, their longer term survivability is based on the ability to keep getting better and to be almost, almost um, unnaturally observant and attentive to failures, you know, little, little mishaps and process uh, weaknesses that they, they need to be for high risk organizations, they need to be just unnaturally attentive to the things that go wrong, but that can feel very much at odds with, with looking good and with looking like performance. So one could actually say that the real tension is between the appearance of performance and learning, that, that real performance, and particularly over time, is in fact dependent on learning, about learning, right? It's, it's, it's an activity that is almost one and the same as learning when you're facing any kind of uncertainty or change and, and who isn't, right? So, so it, you know, the, the, um, I think the pattern you describe has been frequently described. It reminds me of uh, Jan Hagen's book, Confronting the Way. It was written much before the 737 MAX incidents that you mentioned, but um, it's on, on airline accidents and it's black box analyses and, and more. And, and some of the most you know, famous and deadly airline accidents in history fall exactly into this pattern, right? With junior officers unwilling to speak up uh, to senior officers in the cockpit and, and blind spots uh, around their, their assumptions of what people understand and do and, and speak up about. And of course, you know, a, a very hierarchical setting. Um, and this is a pattern that plays out in, in healthcare and, and all sorts of settings, a, aviation, shipping, where the risks, you know, the risks to human safety are very real. But what do you think about the idea that, that the junior officer, the subordinate in this instance, is probably not even able to comprehend the situation? You mean by which situation? You mean the technical situation or the organizational and interpersonal situation? So, so yeah, so let me help you understand this a little bit more. So when we talk about the, the captain and the officers, actually, as the ship is heading into the rocks, um, the junior officer is not able to understand the complexity of the situation. So in his or her mind, uh, this happens all the time. The captain is, is an expert and he knows how to handle the situation. So he would be able to recover from the situation. As James Reason says, you know, uh, you know, one person's error is another person's expertise. Let's put it this way. So the idea is that what I'm trying to, to allude towards is that you will only speak up if you understand the complexity of the situation. And where we are today in many high-risk systems is that there are far too many people at the entry level who are working yeah. with people who have significantly higher level of expertise and mm. to work as a team in this situation 
it becomes extremely difficult uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that there is very little trust between the team members from both sides. Uh, the one side perceives that there is very little um, uh, value in the input coming from the subordinate. The subordinate thinks that there's very little value in, in providing any, any output because you know, uh, I fear uh, being seen as somebody incompetent. So there's, there's an awful lot of cognitive imbalance here that is happening. That's yeah. what I was to. I mean, that's so, it's a, that is an interesting and possibly unique pattern in the industry that you're most familiar with, that if you have a big gap in competence, and, and particularly, I mean, it's, it's from what you're saying, it sounds like there are people in roles who actually don't have the competence to deliver, you know, effectively in those roles. And, and so, yes, that's a, you know, that's, that's certainly a very real uh, problem and a real challenge and one that um, is systemic in nature. There's, there's educational deficits, there's labor market deficits, um, there's sort of, you know, the industry as a whole, it sounds like from what you said, was getting just too uh, crowded. Um, that can dilute, um, of course, and that can dilute the price, which can then dilute the ability to pay for the talent you need, which or the education you need, or the capacity uh, that you need. So there's a lot of vicious uh, cycles in in here. It sounds like, and 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 certainly the issue isn't entirely one of speaking up uh, and and interpersonal fear. It is also one of of plain old ordinary skills. Absolutely. And what's interesting is that when you look at some of the recent airline accidents, you see some very similar patterns, Amy. Uh, and mm-hmm. I just uh, so in the case of the Ethiopian Airlines, you have a co-pilot who has just 200 hours of flying experience as against the pilot. So very huge skill differential or skill gradient between yep. the two. Yep. Yep. Uh, you see the image uh, 370. The co-pilot was in his first flight on board the Boeing 777 as a fully approved pilot. Um, and then there's the Costa Concordia, where the, the most senior officer on board the ship is, has very disproportionate experience, very little experience as compared to the captain who was almost 60 years old or 59 years old at the time of the accident. So I think the point I'm trying to make is that this is a systemic problem that runs across many industries where you have uh, this, as you very rightly said, rationalization of cost, uh, wanting to 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 source labor from the cheapest uh, possible sourcing markets, Mm -hmm. very Mm -hmm. questionable training standards being put alongside people who are very highly trained and creates a very interesting dynamic within the team. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's uh, interesting is a funny word for it, but it's, it's, um, um, and and I I think you're saying, which I would agree with from what I know that it's, it's, it's somewhat unprecedented, right? That this kind of gap um, um, is, especially after decades, really, of of um, relative, you know, relatively high access to well-trained pilots, or all of the airlines that needed well-trained pilots could get them, um, whether from training schools or from more more frequently from the military, and they would have. Um, the skill sets and some of the the routines uh, that for communication that they need. 
And the interesting bit is that, uh, Amy, what interests me is that uh, there, are, there are two very different problems. Uh, uh, a captain being a monstrous captain, very terrible or, or uh, a terror of a captain and a systemic problem. And often what we see in the maritime world is, I don't know about other industries, is that we're trying very hard to solve these problems through the tools of psychological safety, but also crew resource management that how can we create the intervention tools for the junior officers to actually speak up when they see a problem. And it goes back to the same thing that unless junior officers are really able to understand where and when they need to speak up, it will be very difficult for them to intervene. So we're trying to solve uh, the wrong problems with the wrong tools. And I just wondered if, have you had any thoughts on this at all? Uh, you mean the, the, the difficulty of speaking up or? Yes. So what the companies are doing is they're giving them training along the lines of crew resource management and psychological right. safety, wherein the problem lies somewhere else, which is, you know, the, 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 at the heart of it is the trust between team members. Uh, purely Trust in competence. That's right. Trust, trust in yeah. competence. That's the word yeah. I was. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, I wouldn't say only thing, right? I would say it's a, a potential two by two in that what you actually need is competence, skill competence, and CRM-like uh, routines and norms and, and, and behaviors, right? Because um, you need people who are competent enough to uh, do their jobs and understand what's going on on the fly and also who are willing and able to speak up. Because I, I think many, many of the accidents historically documented, like in Hagen's book and, and other sources are very competent people Right. But they didn't they just it felt impossible. Right. It felt impossible somehow to speak up against the against the captain. So but but I so I yeah, I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't I think competence is slightly and importantly different than trust in competence. I mean, I can see that you need competence to have trust in competence, but it's it might be just helpful because the word trust covers a lot of ground and it includes some of that interpersonal perceptions about, um, you know, how you'll respond um, when I, you know, say something um, or, or what you'll do. So, I mean, I, I would say what you're talking about is very much adding the competence piece to the mix on these, you know, accident diagnoses and, and the prevention of them. I, I totally agree with you. There is, I mean, there is there is a lot of place for psychological safety. The only issue I see is that in in a very high risk situation, when uh, you have in the Charles Perrault's word, very tightly coupled situation, where you don't have the the, the time and space for for reflection. Uh, obviously, it's very difficult to practice uh, psychological safety in in that particular situation, and those particular situations. So you have lots of traffic on the bridge and the captain has to make a decision. That's not the time to, to, to encourage people to, to discuss and, 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 and admit mistakes and, and talk. But there is a lot of place for all that in meetings, in debriefings, in pre-briefings, in, in the way you normally communicate on the ship. Uh, it's absolutely, and we see a lot of problem in this area. My point really was to, to just have a some some sort of clarification from your end, you know, as somebody who's done so much work in this area, that there is a distinction between psychological safety and trust based on competence, as you very rightly said. Of course, yeah. The sort of fascinating problem or puzzle that I've studied most often is 
um, how you can, in fact, have gone out of your way to hire the right people, uh, to have the right competence, to have the right training, um, and even be clear about the, the goals or the mission and so forth, and yet still be faced with case after case after case of people not speaking up in moments where they had something potentially relevant, right? That was might might be a might be a safety issue. It might be a question. It might be an idea for innovation. Um, it might be all sorts of things. But there, the the observed phenomenon is there is an awful lot of holding back. You know that people will err on the side of holding back. Uh, so the puzzle wasn't, um, you know, no more, no less than okay. You've got the competence. You've got the talent you might not be using them, right? You might not be in a position where you're able to put them uh, to the highest and best possible use for customers, you know, for the mission. And, and, and that just struck me as um, uh, wasteful, I guess is, is, is the way. Now you're bringing in something else that is, is equally important, right? Which is the, the competence needs to be there. And I can imagine a phenomenon whereby that lack of competence exacerbates the phenomena that I have studied, right? Because if um, if I if I don't have the competence, I usually not always, but I usually know that I don't have it, and that makes it all the more interpersonally threatening, right? That puts me in even more of a bind when I'm not sure, you know, if something urgent or, or strange or different is happening. And I just don't know, right? So am I going to speak up? Probably not, right? So you've got a, um, you almost have a double, right? A double trouble uh, here. It's so interesting you say that because uh, we are seeing a lot of technology being implemented to simplify work. And that creates a very interesting pattern where you think that you can get away with lots of skills uh, and replace them with semi-skilled or unskilled people uh, who were initially trained to do certain things. So, and, but on the other hand, ships are getting bigger. Ships are getting more complex and entering into ports and, and, and spaces which are congested. So it's more uncertainty there. So on the one hand, uh, uncertainty is pushing you one direction. Uh, mm -hmm. The cost is pushing mm -hmm. you towards simplification of work. And so you almost end up in a situation where you have one very highly skilled sure. person, which is the captain, and then you have the rest of them as semi-skilled people. And that's that, that dynamics makes it so interesting uh, that it creates that tension of the, the trust in the competence of people. And what you hear, Amy, is that I, I've seen so many times people saying, I don't trust this officer when he goes on the bridge. Uh, I'm constantly uh, up at night just wondering how he's going to navigate. So, so we see a lot of that. And it's so it's it creates a lot of tensions in the workplace and and what's also interesting is that the labor market uh, in the 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 demand for experienced people at least at the top is a categorical and regulatory requirement but nobody's looking at the skill differential here as a result of that that's surprising i mean it seems like it should certainly be added to the to the list of things shortlist of things that need to be you know, considered, regulated. I mean, in some, obviously in some industries more than others, there are real regulatory, and some countries more than others, you know, real regulatory um, requirements on who can do jobs where 
uh, people's lives are at risk, right? And that's, that's um, you know, we can, whether that's in medicine or in, uh, in shipping or any number of other um, settings. Uh, one could say that there is one because the Ethiopian airline pilot who had 200 hours of flying experience did have a certificate. But right, well, inadequate then. Isn't it? Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, and and how's your experience in knowledge based work, which is where mo- which is where most of your work is, most right. of your research lies. You know, people are people everywhere, and the the patterns are quite similar. Uh, you know, the time frames are often different. They're more sometimes the time frames are more just um, elongated. There aren't these you know moments of of of, of physical danger or system breakdown. You know where a ship is going to have a collision or a, a nuclear power plant is going to have a meltdown. Um, they don't. They usually lack those kinds of um, physical and temporal intensity. Uh, but they have a similar pattern in that um, people who, in fact, may have the necessary competence, but just don't feel that the environment is conducive to their expressing themselves. You know, the, the pattern I see most often nowadays, you know, when I, when I ask people about um, these moments where they've held back, right, where they had something they wanted to say, but they didn't, right? They, and, and um, you know, well, what was, what, was, what was the reason, right? And the, the, ra- the range of answers is, well, you know, the boss, you know, is just too, you know, is too dismissive of bad ideas, whatever it is, or the boss's boss was present, or this was a very political issue, right? Um, so I didn't want to put, you know, get on the wrong side of the wrong people, um, or um, um, probably the one, the saddest one to me is, well, nothing would have happened anyway, right? That's where you've kind of given up, right? It's um, you just don't believe that you matter enough. So why bother? Um, sometimes, by the way, I think that one is fear, but an unwillingness to admit the fear. So you sort of, you, it's, it's a little bit more cynical and blasé. But the one that I'm hearing most often is this, I just wasn't confident that what I was going to say was important or right, or would add value, right? And this, and this, um, lack of confidence, I think is on the rise because our knowledge-based work is less and less certain, right? There's more, there's more uncertainty, there's more complexity, there's more interdependence. So the reality is the, the world in which so many people, so many knowledge workers, especially are operating is not one where you can actually expect to have confidence. You know, you shouldn't have, you know, you're almost, if you're overly confident, you're not really sizing up reality quite uh, quite accurately, right? Because reality, reality in a way today is forcing us all to be quite humble. Um, and so when you're telling yourself the following, well, because I'm not confident that I'm right, I'll hold back. You're actually doing your colleagues and yourself a disservice because that's gonna be the new normal, right? The new normal is you're not gonna be confident do it anyway, you know, say it anyway, talk about, like, raise that idea. That might be a game-changing idea for all you know. And especially because very few innovations come from 
a single person with a single idea. It's like, I have an idea and then you add to it and then someone else knows where to, uh, you know, test it out. And it's, it's gotta be a team sport, right? But it will never happen if we are, if we're quiet in the first place. Absolutely. I, I, you know, there's, it's, it's only a few years that I've, I've started practicing this, I mean, that the moment you say, I don't know something, it feels deeply uncomfortable, but the, the, the reaction is quite the opposite of what we mostly imagine. People exactly. feel so much more trust in you as a person. Yep. Ironic, isn't it? Right. They, they, not only do I think they trust you more, they actually like you more. And often there's, I think there's an intuition we have of respecting you more too, because you're, confident enough to say, I don't know. It's quite attractive, really. I mean, if you never, if you said, I don't know to every single thing all day long, well, that might, that might wear out its welcome, but having the honesty, which is why trust is relevant there, but having the, having that willingness and almost ease with yourself to say, I don't know for the things you don't know. And, and it's also potentially a stance of curiosity. Like I don't know. And you're kind of expressing that you might be interested in learning more. Yes, and, and we live in a very professional world and most people will anyway find out you know, how, how, how much you know. Uh, you admitting that will only uh, authenticate uh, your, trust into the, or, or your trust into them. Yeah. I mean, even going back to the shipping example, uh, a, a seafarer who first joined the ship and the captain asked him, so how do you feel keeping an independent watch? And he says that, well, I think it would be nice if you stayed with me for a couple of days until I get the confidence will be much more, uh, much better received than somebody saying, oh, I'll be fine. Uh, don't worry about it. I'll, 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 because right. sort of people will find out the depth of right. your knowledge, isn't it? Right. I like to, you know, Ed Shine uses the term situational humility, right? And, and um, if you don't have situational humility in the kinds of situations where you might be in over your head, you're, you're, um, it's really not very wise. Yes, um, absolutely. Situational humility. I'll remember that one. Uh, nice, nice one to think about. No, that's, that's great. Um, Amy, uh, the fun, I, I, my idea really was to just get together with you and see what your thoughts were on, on this idea. I've been, I've been grappling yeah. with it for oh. a few years now. Well, I think you should really, um, you know, you could map this out to be for, there's two different ideas I think you have. And one is that competence must not be left out. And clearly you need the kind of learning environment, learning culture and competence for excellence, right? That's that sort of upper right-hand quadrant in that two by two. And I think the other idea might be related to the, the, the vicious cycle of, you know, these industry forces that led to growth, um, you know, that led to maybe a shortage of the skilling and then maybe even, you know, some of the price issues as well are creating accidents waiting to happen. Um, and around this key dimension that you identify. And I, I think there's lots of, um, lots of room to work with both of those. Great. Uh, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And you're welcome. Now I enjoyed speaking with you. What did you think? So I'll tell you what I think and what we should be doing. The next time you hear complete silence on the black box or a data recorder, Slow down and stop making too many assumptions about why people don't speak up. 
rather step back and question the silence and look beyond the obvious and convenient explanations. Silence is not always the sign of an abusive captain, a bully pilot, a monster of a surgeon, or on the other hand, a meeky subordinate or a docile officer in a junior rank. It's not always the power distance or the power struggle as we perceive it. When people don't speak up, and I mean speak up to the hierarchy, that could mean many different things. Maybe the co-pilot had no idea what to say. Or the captain had lost all the hope that his officer will have anything meaningful to contribute in a critical situation. The problem may be systemic. It could well be that we have lowered the standards for entry into the cockpit so much that the, the captain has lost trust in his team. The Ethiopian airline co-pilot who had clocked a mere 200 hours as a pilot. How do you speak up and what do you say in times of crisis? Is this really about psychological safety? Think about it. But I think there's another problem with a simplistic approach and a much more immediate one. Imagine sending the captain on a training course on psychological safety when you find out that no one could speak up or raise their concerns in his presence. It is depressing for the captain, an insult to the profession and a drain on resources. And it's not only a drain on resources, it's also counterproductive to the very objective of the training. So before you think you have a solution to the problem, slow down and listen to the sound of silence. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope the time you spent was worthwhile. If the podcast has made you think, slow down and reflect, I have achieved my purpose. Please share it with others in your community. That way the message goes far and wide. I spend a lot of time thinking, researching and producing meaningful content. If there's a specific topic that you wish to know more about, please let me know. If I can, I will make every attempt to create something that is meaningful and valuable to you. If you have a topic that you would like to discuss with me, please feel free to be in touch, particularly if there's something you don't agree with. Disagreements are a lot of fun. I wish to also remind you that all my podcasts, related reference material and transcripts for each podcast is available on my website, novellas.solutions. You can also get in touch with me on the same website or through LinkedIn, Twitter, or my personal website, nipinanand.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.